0: Morning everyone, happy Mother's Day again. You're gonna hear it a couple more times. My name is Eric and uh, I wanna welcome you to E3. And before we get into uh, the text for today, uh, some folks around E3, some kids have participated and, and constructed a special little gift for all the moms of our community. So again, just pay attention to the side screens and watch this video. Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman is well. She's got the strength. Yeah. Flying as well. Mhm. And she looks flying in a leotard. Probably like Spider Man, but with meatballs. Batman. Wonder Woman. Wonder Girl. Wonder Girl? Yeah. Ooh. Supergirl. 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 Superwoman. Wonder Woman. Maybe she could be Hulk. <laughs> no. Okay. Sorry. Wonder Woman. I'm pickle. Pickle. Tickle yourself, tickle her. Yeah, tickle her. Tickle her. Tickle, tickle my baby brother. Dance funny around the whole room. Tell her the funniest joke in the world. Make fun of my dad. It's really mean. (laughs) First things first. What is that usually followed by? Chores. Mm. Clean your room. Clean up. You better clean up your room. I love you. Um, I love you, Bob you are the best you can be, probably. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. She's friends with everyone she meets. It's amazing. She does everything. She um, teaches us. She uh, um, loves people. Because um, when I need help, she helps me. Because she's strong. Because she's my mom. On me so well and investing so, so much in me. I really appreciate it, and I don't think I tell you that enough. Thank you so much, Mom. I love you so very dearly. Don't worry, Mother. Um, God's holding you and is going to care for you forever. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. You're the best person ever. I love you. Happy, Happy Mother's, Mother's Day. Day. Hey, if you're in junior high now, you guys can go and meet your leaders. I thought it was funny how some of the kids, like, the longer the video went on, you know, it's like the slouchier they got in the chair. <laughs> like, I thought they were going to slide off. Yeah, so it's Mother's Day, and, and um, I thought, I thought um, you know, I'd spend a little time with, with you guys um, talking about, you know, my mom. Um, I have got some pictures of her. This is her in a wedding dress. Um, Sorry, man, I'm really emotional today. I don't, I don't know what it, I don't know what, what it is. Um, her name's uh, Margaret. Uh, we call her Peggy. Um, her maiden name is Hearn. Case is her married name. And yes, that was an unfortunate hair choice by me. Um, can we not stare at that picture for the next Okay. Okay. Um, and I want to tell you about my mom. Uh, I am gonna call her today, and I wanna tell you, I, I'm actually gonna call my mom at the 11 o'clock gathering. Um, so if you wanna hear my mom's voice, stick around. I'm gonna call her from the stage. And uh, she knows this is coming, and hopefully, she's, I, you know, I, I told her not to tell me any, any embarrassing stories about me because I'm like, just remember, when you hang up, I still have the microphone. I'll get her back. Um, here's what I learned from my mom uh, I learned I learned the value of, of hard work and I also I think I learned that work isn't always glamorous you know um, and these some of these stories are stereotypical I'm sure we all have them you know but my mother worked in a she worked in a furniture store in Pennsylvania and uh, the stereotypical story I, I have about my mom is the day I was born right she worked a full day of work Um Probably in labor, came home, cooked dinner, pork chops. Always was told it was pork chops. Probably in labor, and then after taking care of all of those things, went to the hospital, and uh, and I was born. You know, and just I don't that that's more than my mom, you know, but that's my story. Um, And then she went on, uh, and she worked and. And what she also taught me about work also bled into this other thing that she taught me, and that was the value of education. And neither of my parents went to college; they went to, I think, business schools or you know, two-year programs back in the day. But they just declared to my sister and I, they said, "Look, you're going to school. You know, we didn't. You are." And so my sister, she's five years older than me. She went to um, she went to Texas Tech University. Um, she got some scholarship money and, and and went there. And then when my time came around, um, you know, like a lot of us, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I had trouble picking a college, and 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 I picked uh, a private school to go to. And I didn't really know financially what a private school meant. But because of that value, like my mom and my dad, they never said no, you know, and they should have. They should have. Um And I found out later, actually, I probably knew it at the time, but I was just too self-centered to realize it, that everything my mom earned, she went to work for Sears. We moved to Texas. She She went to work for Sears, a service center, So like in the 70s and 80s, if you lived in Texas in the Dallas area and your lawnmower broke or your washing machine broke and you called them, you might have talked to Peggy Case. And the woman knew more about lawnmowers and washing machines. Even to this day, I'll be like, Mom, my lawnmower broke. She's like, what's it doing? And she's like, well, you probably need... But pretty much everything my mom made paid my tuition. She sent me to school, you know? And uh, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't that I didn't realize it. I didn't. I wasn't appreciative enough. Um, but so she, she taught me about work and education. And she worked. You know what? She retired from Sears. She worked there like 30 years. You know, wore a uniform. You know, just not glamorous work at all. But she just showed up every day, and she got it done. And the last thing that I think my mom did is uh, she taught me the value of being in church, being in a faith community. Because by golly, every Sunday we were in church. Now, if, you were, if your family was anything like mine, you know that the hours getting ready for church were not so church-like. I mean, they might've been like the seventh circle of hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth, but by golly, we got out the door and somehow made it to church every every Sunday and, um, and somehow that value took, took, took root deep in my, my life and in my sister's life and, and, when, our, and when our lives got to be, uh, when we became adults and then when our lives fell apart because most of the times our life falls apart in some form, we, we had that value of like, you know what, there's a place that I can go that I can just sit and hear something that will build me up and tell me that life is, is bigger than my circumstance. So, that's my mom, um, but, but we're here to celebrate Mother's Day, and, and this is not the only, like, mother type of influence in my life, right? And even, so, you know, I already told my kids to wish their mother, my wife, uh, happy Mother's Day, but this is my wife, you guys, most of you guys know her, Shana. She's, uh, she's in Alabama today with, with Levi at a soccer tournament, and, uh, You know this woman is a profound influence on my life, and uh, you know a lot of you guys might know her from Financial Peace, and you know her as the the dollars and cents uh, woman. And a lot, a lot of you guys you you may not know this. A lot of you guys think that somehow like I'm Shana's like apprentice. So if you can't get a hold of Shana for financial questions, you text them to me. Don't, okay? Because I don't know. Um. But you guys, you guys know her as the financial peace woman and the economics woman and the, you know. Um, but let me tell you, she's a lot more than that. And you guys don't know, right? She's, a, she's spiritually astute. She's discerning. She's hungry for God. She teaches me more about God than I teach myself. I can tell you that much. Other uh, big influence in my life, not, again, not my mother, that's my sister, Beth Stoddard. She's a pastor up in Virginia. Uh, She has spoken more ugly truth to me than probably any other person on the planet. But things that I needed to hear. You know, she loves me. She's my biggest cheerleader, but because she loves me and because she's my cheerleader, she has said clarifying things to me when I needed to hear them most. You know, when I was kind of going this way and very headstrong in my thinking, and all, you know, I'm gonna do this. And she would be like the one that tapped me on the shoulder and said, Can I tell you how messed up you are? And because I knew she loves me, because I know she's my biggest cheerleader. Like, it's one of those times where I just sit up and listen. And the the list goes on and on uh, from from here. Um, And let me just tell you about a couple other women uh, and, and influences in my life that were like mothers to me, right? I actually, when I started working for churches, my first boss, my first the you know, supervisor in ministry was a woman named Nancy Ortberg. And uh, she was the first woman that, or first person that ever sat down and said, look, Eric, I get it. You can play music and you can sing really well. But she said, let me, let me give you a couple things to think about. She said, Eric, I think, I think there's a teacher inside you. I think, there's, I think there's something inside you that God wants to bring out in terms of communicating to people. And she said, Eric, I think there might be a, a leader inside you a leader that that, that wants to kind of lead people and help organizations and ministries go places. Um, This was up in in Chicago. When we moved to Chicago, you know, we didn't have any friends and family up there. Shana and I moved up there. Man, we were just orphans, little Texan orphans in in the big city. And we ran across this woman named Barb Dolan, and her and her husband led uh, our first Bible study. They were in their 50s, we were in our 20s. And this woman just was our, she was our surrogate mom. You know, and she took us in, she fed us. She uh, spoke truth into our lives when, when we were thinking crazy thoughts because most 20-somethings, speak, uh, they think crazy thoughts. If you're in your 20s, sorry, but somebody needs to tell you. <laughs> she gave us places to refuel. You know, they had a beach house in Michigan and she would just like master of hospitality. Come to the house, you could just Relax. But one of the things that I most remember about Barb is that I remember sleeping in all the time at her house. She had this room we called the cave and it almost had like blackout windows and you could just sleep and you wouldn't even know what time it was, you know? And I'd wake up and I'd always feel that vague sense of guilt of like sleeping till 10 or 10, 30, you know, even especially as a 20 something. And she's like, and her phrase was, well, if you slept that long, you probably needed to. But just little gentle things like that. Um, and then in this community, I wanna tell you, I'm not gonna name names because sometimes that gets awkward. But there are people in this community that, that still, women, that mother me in such amazing ways. I've got friends who tap me on the shoulder whenever I'm not living a relationally honest life. And they tap me and they say, you've got some unresolved issues with this person. You need to go be honest with them. Okay. I've, got, I've got people and women in this community that encourage me constantly. Oh my gosh, Eric! Keep going, keep going. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So many uh, influences on my life. So Mother's Day is, is such an important day to honor, like Dan said, not just the women, but what they represent in the character of God. So uh, I'm going to say a prayer for uh, for the mothers and and the mothers to be and the spiritual mothers in our community and. Um, I'm gonna ask you all to bow your heads and just hear these words as I pray for the women in this community. Pray a blessing and, uh, and you guys join me in this prayer. Father, we thank you for our mothers to whom you've entrusted the care of every precious human life from the very beginning in the womb. God, you've given to women the capacity of participating with you in the creation of new life. Grant that every woman may come to understand the full meaning of that blessing, which gives her an unlimited capacity for selfless love. For every child she may be privileged to bear and for all your children. God, watch over every mother who is with child. Strengthen her faith in your fatherly care and love for her and her unborn baby. Give her courage in times of fear or pain. Understanding in times of uncertainty and doubt and hope in times of trouble. Grant her joy in the birth of her child. God, to mothers, you've given the great privilege and responsibility of being a child's first teacher And spiritual guide grant that all mothers may worthily foster the faith of their children. Following the example of Mary, Elizabeth, Peggy Case and other holy women who follow Christ. Help mothers to grow daily in the knowledge and understanding of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ and grant them the wisdom to impart this knowledge faithfully to their children and to all who depend upon them. God assist all spiritual mothers, those who may, though may, they may have no children of their own, nevertheless, selflessly care for the children of others of every age and stage in life. Grant that they may know the joy of fulfilling this motherly calling of women, whether in teaching, nursing, leadership, religious life, or in any other work, which recognizes and fosters the true dignity of every human being created in your image and likeness. We beseech you to send your Holy Spirit, the Comforter to all mothers who sorrow for children that have died, are ill, or estranged from their families, or who are in trouble or danger of any any kind. Help grieving mothers to rely on your tender mercy and fatherly love for all your children. God bless all of those to whom you've entrusted any form of motherhood. May they receive your grace in this life And may they look forward to eternal joy in your presence in the life to come. We ask this through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Watch this on the side screens. You know, and and the truth of the matter is, is that as people have studied this, they've said, no, genius is actually, most of the time, the result of an incredible amount of hard work and discipline that uh, you need to have a life that, that can facilitate doing 10,000 hours of work. That's a lot of time. But that if you put the hours in with a the, with the baseline sort of um, ability, you can become a genius. You can become a master, a craftsman. This is one of my guitars. So uh, who is that guy? Um, that was a message I preached about seven, six years ago. And uh, I was looking for that message this week as I was, pre- as I was preparing for today. Um, a couple things about that, that message. It was actually, I found out it was actually the first time we did Philippians. We did, first time we went through Philippians was in 2011. And uh, we, I, I brought up uh, this concept then of uh, 10,000 hours. That's what I was talking about. And 10,000 hours is, is a concept that was really made popular by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers. And in that book, Gladwell introduced the concept of mastery and expertise that can be gained over 10,000 hours of practice. So he goes through different, uh, different examples in the book. He uses the Beatles. He uses uh, students at, at a prestigious music school in Europe. And he found that really there is this unique number of 10,000 hours. It's not just picked out of the the sky, that people who have mastered instruments, mastered a science, mastered a medical profession, mastered anything, have spent roughly 10,000 hours practicing it. And uh, that resurfaced for me this week in some very, you know, kind of Holy Spirit ways, and it led me to return to the concept for what we're going to talk about today. But as I returned to it, uh, I found out that there were some interesting new developments. So I'm getting the unique, and you guys are getting the unique opportunity to hear me update a message and maybe admit, hey, like some new information has come to light, so I have to massage what I said six years ago and nuance it a little bit. So this idea of 10,000 hours, even though it was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, it actually comes from a guy named Anders Erickson, who's a psychologist and a professor at where else? Florida State University. I had no idea about that. So Ericsson is the guy that, that came up with the original concept and did the original studies with some other people about 10,000 hours producing a level of mastery. Uh, But in that concept, like he found out that uh, there was some particular aspects of 10,000 hours that I thought were worth exploring. And so what we're gonna do is explore that through the text of Philippians 3 and through a specific set of verses in Philippians 3. Uh, as I got into it, I'm just gonna be flat out honest. Like, there was no way I could do this, Philippians 3, in one week. So we're gonna figure out a way to circle back to some of these verses. But for our purposes today, I want us to look uh, at the text beginning in verse 17. So again, Philippians starts at roughly page 708 in the E3 Black Bibles. Um, if, you, if you have one of those, that's where you gotta go to chapter three. Otherwise, just follow along. So Paul says this way, starting in verse 17. He says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your life after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life Here on earth, but we are citizens of, what's it say? Heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Then he goes into uh, chapter four, actually, he says, Therefore, My dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown that I receive for my work. All right, I'm gonna tell you, like I'm gonna hope that I can uh, ignite just a little bit of the passion in you that this text ignites in me. So if I don't, then just enjoy me making a fool of myself for about the next 20 minutes because this text Is explosive. This text is revolutionary. This text is subversive. This text will change your life if you understand it properly. Paul uh, throws uh, the last or one of the biggest verbal and grammatical hand grenades into this text. You know, we've been exploring about how he's pushing on this idea of citizenship. He's pushing on this idea of whether you are a citizen of Rome, of an earthly kingdom, or whether you uh, live by kingdom, heavenly kingdom values. And in this text, in verse 20, he, he really goes at the heart of it. And he uses a word that only appears twice in the entire uh, New Testament, And in particular, obviously in the entire body of letters that Paul writes in verse 20, when he says, we are citizens of heaven. He only uses that word one other time in the entire dictionary of his letters. And you know where it actually, the other time is? It's in chapter one of verse Philippians. So out of all of Paul's letters and out of all of the New Testament There was something unique that Paul wants to express. If you're studying the Bible, you would look and you go, oh, man, this word is never used except in this letter. So what is Paul doing? Well, I want to just, spoiler alert, Paul is pushing to the utmost degree of of the idea of where the Philippians' citizenship lies. And he basically just pulls off all the little subtleties, all the little, uh, you know, hints and allegations that he makes, and he just goes straight to the heart of it. Look, we are citizens of heaven, not Rome. And in chapter 1, in verse 27, he says it uh, in a similar fashion. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, now again, if you if you want to go back, if you maybe need a refresher, I would just go back to the first week of this series, watch the Vimeo. If you haven't seen it, go back. There's so much beautiful historical context of what Paul's doing here. Okay. So he just goes straight at the heart of the Philippians. Self-conception. Where is your citizenship? And he says, look, we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And now remember, in Philippi, who is supposed to be the Lord according to Rome? Caesar. But Paul, but Paul says, no, we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. And this word is actually really, really unique to Paul as well. You wouldn't think that, because savior is a pretty common church language. It's actually unique usage in Paul. Soter, and uh, guess who's also known prefers to be known as a savior in Rome, Caesar. So Paul says, "No, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is our Caesar, and Caesar is not our savior. Jesus Christ is our savior." But what is also going on underneath all of that is. The central question of um, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What is Paul getting at, in the, in the, particularly in the scope of his larger theology? Because Paul is, is, is hinting at something right here when he's saying, look, we're citizens of heaven, and guess what? We're waiting for him to come to us, right? It says, we're waiting for him to return as our savior and change our bodies. And what Paul's talking about there is this thing called the resurrection. And that is where our concept and our topic of hope comes from. And what it means for us today is simply the saying is to be a citizen of heaven, in this context, means to have hope in the resurrection. Okay? Now, this is where I get a little bit geeky because a lot of us go, okay, yeah, resurrection, that's kind of a cool, vague theological concept. What does that mean for us today? And I wanna tell you that it means everything to Paul, everything. Uh, and it, first of all, we, talk, we talk about it by, in terms of the language. Like Paul is saying, like, look, the resurrection means that this guy, Jesus, is going to come to us. Our God is not far off, like that song we sang earlier. A God in outer space doesn't do anything for me. But Jesus Christ will come to us. Our hope is not far off in the clouds. Our hope is going to be present to us. Philippi is a colony of Rome. Now Think about that. Paul's using that concept here. And he says, look, the point of a colony is not that eventually we're all gonna get up and go move to Rome, the point of a colony is that you exist to bring some of Rome to the world. And in the same way, Paul's saying, Look, we're citizens of heaven. It's our job not to get up and go out of here and go be with, be with heaven sometime. The part of us is to bring heaven down to this earth now. Just like uh, Kelby read that scripture earlier, Revelation 21. Eventually, heaven. uh, in the new Jerusalem we're going to meet in a very real way. Now, where this gets interesting is that uh, this pushes on our concept of the afterlife. Okay? And let me just give you a perspective uh, of, of what a North American church afterlife can tend to look like. Now, Your concept of the afterlife might look a little bit like this guy. Nicolas Cage appears in uh, the blockbuster film Left Behind. Big book series in the 90s. Anybody ever read the Left Behind series? I read a couple of them. Huge influence on the North American concept of the Afterlife. Bunch of people disappear in something called the rapture, a bunch of people left over, there's a bunch of battles, there's an Antichrist. Okay? It's a huge influence. Let me tell you, uh, I don't have a huge lot of time to unpack this. This is not uh, left behind, is not the only biblical way to understand what's gonna happen at the end. Okay? That's for another series some other time. Your concept of the afterlife might look a little bit also like this. Just watch this. Maud Simpson, welcome to Protestant heaven. Ruin and one, hurrah! Poppy, have you seen Dash? But Where's Homer and Bart? <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> wow, up here, that feels good. Now dance your heavenly gobs. Mm, I wish my family was with me. Sorry, Marge, they're just not our sort. So maybe your concept of the afterlife is that we're all gonna exist on clouds with halos and maybe there's croquet or maybe there's pinatas, who knows, okay? That we go, we fly out of here. And even a lot of the war- songs we sing are kind of based on that. You know, some, great, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. But the text here says that that's not quite it. That Paul says, look, our king is coming here. Resurrection is not existing in the clouds forever. Resurrection is the king coming here and changing our bodies and changing this world and making it new and glorious and fit for him. And lastly, maybe your concept of the afterlife looks a little bit like this. Beloved, we are this thing called life. I you word life that means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world that never ends. happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call out that trigger. He's dancing in the back, just so you know. Um, I think what we need at E3 with E3 Music is more synchronized dance moves. What do you guys think? I think so. Look, I couldn't resist, man. It's Prince, right? Um, I, I even like printed out his little monologue at the end so I could meditate on it this morning. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Right, so your concept of the after, after, afterlife in, in, in our culture is mostly really, really strongly oriented to us getting out of here and flying away in togas and angel wings. But Paul's saying, uh, your hope is not that. And I think it's really important because if your hope is that, look, we're all out of here someday, then I think what, what subtly happens is that you're like, the other part of that equation is like, we're all out of here someday, so let's just watch this whole operation go over the edge of a cliff because I'm flying away someday. This whole world is going over the cliff. But someday the clouds are going to be here and we're going to be flying. And that's what heaven's going to be. But when your hope is that the king is coming back and the king is going to make everything new and the king is going to restore your bodies and the king is going to fix the broken things of this world and the king is going to make justice roll then that sets your hope firmly here. Even though you're a citizen of heaven, you are a colony of the kingdom of God. And when people walk into a church or when they walk into a growth group or when they just see you in your, in your office or in your classroom, what they should be seeing is a foretaste of what God wants to do for the entire world when the time comes. Okay, so what does this have to do with 10,000 hours, right? Okay, well, this is what I was thinking about. Uh, and this is where, uh, as I explored uh, Anders Erickson's studies and differentiated a little bit from what Malcolm Gladwell had to say, um, it's interesting because what Ericsson uh, Starts to, starts to unpack is, is, is that it's not just 10,000 hours. And one of the ways I would say is, is that what 10,000 hours has to do with hope is that first of all, I think a lot of times we don't know what to hope in. That's what I just was telling you about. Our hope is not that we fly away someday. Our hope is that our bodies are renewed and the world is renewed. But then the second part of that is, well, how, do I, how does that impact my life? Do I just sit around waiting? This is, where, this is where it gets really interesting to me. You see, what Ericsson said is that it's not just enough to do something for 10,000 hours and to hope that you will become a master at it. That what Ericsson actually says is that you have to take an approach to 10,000 hours of, of any type of project and, and your approach needs to be purposeful and it needs to be deliberate. So what he means by purposeful is that you need to choose to to accomplish a specific aspect of whatever you're trying to master, okay? But what he says about deliberate is is that uh, deliberate practice involves having a teacher, and it involves constantly getting out of your comfort zone. And this is where it gets really, really interesting for church folk. Because the opposite thing is that what, what, Andre, what Erickson also found out is that there's this concept of acceptable performance. And what he discovered is that uh, people will, uh, will reach a level of what they call acceptable performance, even as like a doctor, and they will keep just doing the things that they've always done, thinking that they're growing towards mastery. But if you don't keep getting out of your comfort zone and if you don't have a teacher, that what he actually found is that actually your mastery goes down over time. And when I was listening to this, one of the phrases that popped into my head instantly is like, you know what? Okay, I'm, so- I'm sorry if I'm about to step on any toes, but church attendance does not get it done. okay that we could spend 10,000 hours sitting in these comfy chairs, 10,000 hours uh, drinking complimentary coffee, 10,000 hours going to growth groups and not grow anywhere towards the level of hope that we need because we reach the level of acceptable church performance. Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? Look, this happened to me. This happened to me. I hung around churches for a long time. Never grew a lick thinking that, oh, you know, maybe this thing just works like osmosis. And thank, literally thank God, some of it actually does. <laughs> but until I decided to get out of my comfort zone and get a teacher, I didn't grow anywhere like I like could be or should be. I thought of it this way, like, Hope doesn't just happen. We'd like to think that if we just come to enough gatherings and we listen to enough sermons and we we sing enough worship music that we'll end up like like Paul, maybe, if you know your Bible story, or you'll have hope. Because remember, what's Paul going through? He's in prison. He's at the end of his life. He's been beaten. He's been kicked out of synagogue after synagogue, he's been rejected by so many people and yet he's sitting there writing this letter and he's like, man, I rejoice, I rejoice. How do you get hope like that? Not by just hanging out in the synagogue or hanging out at churches. I think Paul was really good at deliberate practice and I think he had a teacher and I think he did not even have a comfort zone. And as soon as he felt it, he was like, oh, get away, it's a comfort zone. Let me go somewhere else. Maybe I'll get beaten up there. <laughs> Paul lived outside of his comfort zone. Hope does not just happen. And I think most of us in this room need some level of hope. I think a lot of times we go, you know, don't worry about it. It's, it's the resurrection, it, it's not going to matter. But I'm telling you, it does. Because everything you do now will ring out through eternity. And and if that's your, your eternal destiny is going to be a new world, new relationships, new bodies. Why not start now? Are you content limping through life? Because here's the deal um, about hope is hope, hope means risk. Hope means a chance of Pain. And a lot of us have gotten so used to not hoping that we're a lot lot more comfortable because like, you know, if I don't hope, I don't get hurt again. And we've lost hope. (sighs) So what I wanna do is just kind of wrap things up by asking and going through uh, 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 some particular examples of why hope matters. Um. You know, you might have you might have lost hope for for a job. You know, you might be sitting here and barely paying bills, and you've tried and you've tried, or you've stopped trying, or maybe you've never tried. Because what's the pain? Being rejected, being told no. Hope means that I'm gonna. Get out of my comfort zone and do it. You know, um, you might be in a uh, you might be in a bad relationship. You know, and you've lost hope that it's ever going to change. You've lost hope that you can ever change, and you're just existing in this thing, and and the pain seems so great. But hope says, maybe one day you just establish some boundaries. You know, like you can't you can't treat me like that anymore. You can't. You know, and you, you risk somebody walking out the door. But the hope is that, look, I'm not made for this. You might have an addiction. You've lost hope that it'll ever change. I can't kick this thing. Well, your risk becomes confession. Pulling somebody aside says, look, I got this thing. I need help. And I'm, I'm willing to risk the fact that uh, you might think differently about me when I tell you this. But here's the way hope works, I think, is that every time you, you get out of that comfort zone and you take a chance, you get a little bit stronger. Because most of us discover that the world does not collapse when we take a step outside our comfort zone. We risk a little. We share a little bit of our lives. We tell somebody no. We reach for a job that is maybe a little bit above our pay grade, but we need to just chance. And we find that, oh, my gosh, I'm a little bit stronger. I didn't die. You know, I'm going to be really, really honest in the last couple minutes that I have left. When uh, When I signed up for ministry, you know what I signed up for? I signed up for electric guitar and singing and preaching, you know? I didn't sign up for funerals. And I didn't sign up for hospital visits. And the first couple of times I had to do those things, I was terrified. I was not trained at this point. I remember the first time I really had to do this was an unfortunate tragedy happened in our community years ago. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Every one of the, it's just one of those things. Every one of the pastoral staff was on vacation and, and away and I was on vacation in St. George, and I got a phone call. Something awful has happened to a child in our community, and nobody's here, and you gotta gotta come. I'm like, well, can I bring my electric guitar and sing a song? I didn't really say that. They didn't need that. And trust me, in that two and a half hour drive from from St. George to here, um, I didn't have anything for them in my rational thought. So I took a chance and I stepped in to a place that was way outside my comfort zone. I didn't have any magic words. I had nothing except the spirit of God in my presence. And I walked away from that. You get other phone calls, you show up, you know. sitting at at the bedside of a friend of mine who who died a couple years ago. You don't get manuals for that. (laughs) But what I discovered over time is that that's cultivating hope in my life. I get outside of my comfort zone and I realize, oh my gosh, I didn't die. And you know what? Actually, I believe in this thing. I have more hope now than I did six years ago. I know that this stuff is real. I've gone all in on Jesus. But I don't think I would have gone all in if I just sat around and played guitar. I would have enjoyed it. But hope doesn't just happen. It didn't just happen in my life. So my two questions for you today are what about you? When's the last time you got out of your comfort zone? Relationally? Personally? How much hope do you have, and are you willing to stretch yourself beyond that comfort zone? And the last thing is the, do you have a hope teacher? Somebody who's, who's been down the road of, of some of this stuff a little bit and can see when you're like at the borderline of your comfort zone and can be like, <laughs> step across, buddy. I have multiple hope teachers that very gently pull me out of my comfort zone. I'm grateful for every single one of them. Uh, and like this, a good friend of mine, who, who you guys know, but I'm not gonna say his name, he has a habit of going to the hard places of the world. Just does. He's not Superman. Um, and he recently came back from from, uh, from Haiti. And uh, I was asking him this week, I said, man, where does hope live in Haiti? And uh, he, he teared up. And uh, in a way, he, he was like, I don't really know. He said, but it's there. He's like, these people who have nothing. And I almost started thinking like this morning, I was like, they have nothing. They have no comfort zone. So all they have is hope. And then I got a text message from him the next day and he said, hey, I, I put something on your desk that I bought in Haiti. He's like, I think, I didn't really know why I bought it for you, but now I think I know. And so I came in on Wednesday and this is what I found on my desk. It's a Christmas ornament, it says hope. And I was like, yeah, I think I know why you bought it now, buddy. Uh, don't just expect hope to happen in your life. The band's going to come on stage. We're going to close our time with a, with a song that we've sung many times. We need to remember that the victory is won. Our King is coming for us, and that's the basis of our hope. But it's not just going to happen in your life. We all need it. But showing up on Sunday is just a first step. Get out of your comfort zone. Find a person that will pull you into the uncomfortable places in your life so that you can see hope arise in your life the way God wants it to. Amen. Amen.